Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We've just been talking about the piano, the piano concerto, the piano sonata, the piano sonata form, Mozart, Beethoven, and the piano, everything about the piano. Um, those of you who are longtime fans of the Good Music Podcast probably remember a puzzle in a particular episode previously. <laughs> I can't remember which episode it was, but I've it was, just been it was the carcass episode. I've just been, oh, it was because we we're talking about the uh, the cutting apart the dude the cor- the corporal puzzle. jigsaw quandary. Yes, that one. And so I've just been informed that um, that puzzle is close to completion, which is it's this been a long time the, coming. This is one of the hardest puzzles I've ever worked on because <laughs> it's 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 him in the Dagobah swamp, and like everything is just a different shade of dark green oh yeah that can get uh i can get kind of intense it's or been like, very and i'm in the most difficult part right now but i'm getting really is, yeah everything looks the same right now but <laughs> maybe i'll finish up while we record tonight maybe maybe so um anyway we're not talking about puzzles here we're not talking about yoda puzzles here we're talking about the piano we're talking about the six songs that we have selected for this episode so every episode um, if you're new, every episode, we like to pick six songs that you guys can listen to, that we listen to, and really pick apart and add some interesting information and stories that we wouldn't otherwise talk about in the podcast. Um, it'll provide a great listening experience, a great introduction to the music or the artist or whatever we're talking about for that episode. If you guys want to listen to that music, which we highly recommend that you do, there is a link down in the description of every single episode to a Spotify playlist with not only these songs, but all the songs from all of the previous episodes. So definitely you'll have the chance to listen to them. Take that chance. If there's other songs on that list that you're interested in or other artists, we have an episode on that. So be sure to check that out as well. And without further ado, which I haven't said that phrase in a while, um, we should get to our first song, which I know these all have formal names. So I'll just let you introduce them. So, I got to make sure I say it right. So, next, first we have the concerto for two pianos. Um, so, we're, we're, just, we're just coming right in with a blitz of piano work. But um, I think that it, it's very cool to start with this that doesn't start with piano. And I'm sure that whenever you first started up, because I told you that we were going to be doing a piano-based one, and then to come in and there's no piano right off the bat, um, it, it comes in with a with an orchestral movement. Yeah, it was but a little the, confusing, but I knew that it was going to get there. Yeah, it I mean, really it, does. <laughs> it tells you in the title. Right. It probably would have been more of a, a surprise if that if it hadn't said it, but. Um, yeah, when the when the pianos plural come in, it's it's quite the introduction because w- the first part with just the orchestration, it's so similar to what we've been listening to. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like we're listening to it, just like oh yeah, this is this is where we've been for the last four months, and yeah. then to all of a sudden have the piano just kind of come in, it's just like this is new. We haven't heard anything like this yet. Mm-hmm. So how how is that set up performance wise? Like geometrically, were the two pianists facing each other? Were they side by side? Like because you have to um, think with this guy, you know. 
Yeah. Um, the one that I saw, the two pianos were side by side. Like facing um, the same way? Yeah. Interesting. And so this is, this is a Mozart composition. And um, it's likely that the idea for this came from the fact that when Mozart was a kid, um, he was very famously trotted around all of Europe by his father to, you know, kind of show off that he was this boy genius. You know, the reason why any time a child displays any kind of uh, musical aptitude, we call him, oh, he's a Mozart. Because, you know, he's he's a kid that somehow has this incredible ability to play. But what people don't remember or realize is that he did not go and perform by himself. His older sister, Nanarol, was also an incredibly accomplished keyboard player. She it was his older sister. And the whole reason he got into piano when he was younger is because his sister had already started learning and was becoming a prodigy in of herself. She probably would have been even more impressive had her younger brother not been Mozart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but a big Long part time. a big part of their show whenever they would go and travel around and play at all these different places that they would do these these dueling duet pieces with each other that's kind of cool having two keyboards playing at the same time and so um, that's likely the inspiration of where he was just like I'm going to have this be for two pianos because he knew much better than most other players what requ- was required to play have two great pianists playing at the same time mm-hmm. because this is this is not a one piano's comp- competing against the other it's very much a they are working together this is not this piano and then this piano it's almost like it's a giant piano and a person with four hands is playing yeah that makes sense because I didn't see the title any e flat minor for two pianos. I just was like, oh, this is concerto number 10 in my head. But mm-hmm. it makes so much more sense that there's two pianos because th- uh, there's some really intense moments here. That yeah. even, even still for two pianos is, is a lot. There's some intense runs and, 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 and complex playing on the lower hand as well that you really don't even hear. Um, Oh, yeah, it's it's quite impressive, and so yeah, he he obviously knows what he's doing. I mean, he does know what he's doing. This is our fourth week on him, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, he knows what he's doing from a from a uh, performance perspective, like all about blowing away the audience with the technical ability. He knows what he's doing there. Yeah, I mean, just if you're if you're in any doubt at this point about what Mozart is capable of, then. You know, we must really not have done our job yeah. these last <laughs> three weeks or three months. And I think uh, he would like he would perform this himself. Be part of a lot story. of times. Yes, that was the main um, way that he would perform music live would be as a pianist, and specifically with concertos, he usually always wrote it to where he would be the solo player. I mean, one so, might say that's narcissistic, but well, another that's, might say that's, that's how that's, you get the best music. That's, that's the way most concerto writers wrote. They usually wrote 
for instruments that they could also play themselves. Now, there, there are exceptions to that, but especially he wrote more uh, piano concertos than any other type of concerto. And so, you know, he's going to write mostly in the, for concerto, the instrument that he can also play extremely well, because the whole thing with concertos is that you've got a lot of soloing going on. And right. you're not going to be able to, it'd be like if I tried to write a guitar solo. I don't know how to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm not going to come up with a very good guitar solo. Right. So it's it's the same, you know. Now Mozart, he he could probably play anything better than most any of us could. <laughs> yeah. But there's a reason why he wrote way more piano pieces than anything else as far as instrumental music and it's just because that's what he that's what he was best at it's what he loved the most and um he he had the expectation a good amount of the time that he was going to get up there and play that piece mm-hmm. it's it's honestly where he made the majority of his money because operas take a long time to make and they have a short run time. So he might get a large amount of money very quickly once it finally comes in. But like his main source of revenue was going up and performing keyboard pieces. Yeah. That's the, so, way, that's the way it is now. You know, most of the money in the music industry is that live performance. Mm hmm. But so, that's, what, that's what the people want. You know? Yeah. They want to Man. see. The the main theme of this concerto, I think, is one of the best melodies that he ever came up with. That that was one. Whenever I first started getting into the history of music, like six years ago, and I was kind of getting into Mozart for the first time. Um, This was one of the first ones that I heard and was just like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. It's it's got that classic Mozart, you know, continue the rhythm over and over again with slightly different notes. Mm -hmm. It's it's infectious. It's his calling card and he knows how to use it so well. You know, it's not it's not necessarily a trick or maybe like a tool he uses to write. I think he just uses it because it sounds great. And it yeah. helps, it helps <laughs> like like not to cheat is what I mean. Like it just it it helps create such a great melody, and that's really what a melody is. It's it's a good melody is is something that's simultaneously expected and fresh. You know, so you're very comfortable and yet there's something new. And it's like even down to the milliseconds, you know, that's that's true in his music. Yeah. So it's, it's just it's an incredible display of theme and variation. Yeah. Of just you you introduce that first theme and everything builds off of it. And it's you get into these long piano sections but then you always know that everything's coming home when it starts to play that main line and then the orchestra comes back in and it it feels good every single time he does it. Yeah. And it feels like one long passage, one giant idea, 
It's not chopped up into little bits or whatever, which, you know, maybe you like that. Maybe you like the different sweets or whatever. But this just sounds like one cohesive idea, which is really impressive if you think about it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's just it's a brilliant it's a brilliant piece. I think it's I think it's an interesting way to kind of just jump right into the piano. Yeah. And um, especially you got you. I gave you two pianos right there at the very beginning. Yeah. So. You're welcome for that. This is really seven songs, but two of them are smashed together simultaneously, which we've never done before. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it's two songs. <laughs> yeah, but I, I understand what you're saying. I am. I am. Uh, I can't do a pun with the next title because I don't know it. I don't think you'll be able to do puns with any of these. <laughs> uh, okay. Challenge accepted. I actually okay. never mind. So we're moving um, to is this facile? Facile. Uh, yes, yes, it is. I don't know how to pronounce that, but okay. So, probably Spanish. Spanish and fairly close languages. My apologies to native speakers. Um, this is a piano sonata, and this is. I would say this is one of his most recognizable works ever. This is kind of one of those ones you hear it and it's just like, oh yeah, I've heard this before. Really? Like this is just one of those, this is one of those Mozart pieces that like is in the background to everything. I've never heard this before. I've, really? Because I have heard this so many times without, are you, are without sure really knowing it's Mozart. with our next song? No, I'm, no, because the next one is I feel is the same way. Which just, in my opinion, goes to show that Mozart's music, more than any other composer's, has stood the test of time. Mm. As far as, like, not just being, like, you know, orchestral music students know and appreciate it, but it's just like, everyday people have heard a large portion of his music. Which is a yeah. pretty, which is a pretty huge deal. That's true. And yeah, and this this is another one of those, another one of those songs that I was talking about. How it's just run after run after run of just perfect squared off, technical exact tempo stuff. Yeah, it's just it's amazing how he will do these fast passages, and yet it all is coherent. It all yeah. has a purpose and a direction. You can still feel the melody. It's yeah. it's the Randy Rhodes. Um, that's where he got it. I'm guarantee. Oh yeah, with the oh, way that sure. he composed solos, where it's 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 shredding, but at the same time, you can, in a weird way, you can hum it, even if you can't hum every single note. They're not just they're not notes that are just there for the sake of filling out the run. Yeah, and he's like moving through the different major modes as he's like changing between the theme and the variation, which is so cool. Yeah, and you've got that great moment when it it pitches up for the recapitulation. Yeah, like, which I think is a great subversion because that's not what you would normally do. Because you have your you have your exposition, you have your um, your 
developmental section and then with the recapitulation your expectation will be that it'll play exactly the same as it was in the first time but he does except that it's pitched up this is where the 90s pop key change came from uh-huh <laughs> oh good old 90s pop key change where would we be without you uh i don't i don't know if i want to answer that question right now because we might be in a place that i would like to be stuck in the 80s anyway um we're stuck in the 1780s right now so oh yeah we are which we actually are wow (laughs) oh boy no I, i i know what you mean it's like it it's a little it definitely is a recapitulation but it's not it's following the rules just enough but to break them. Just enough to be "quote unquote" following the rules, you know. So it's not necessarily but, like like pushing the boundary to be avant garde or weird or prog or anything. But to use, it's kind of using the rules to your advantage. Yeah, very, very Bach in that way. And yeah, and Mozart, with Mozart. Mozart is very good at that. Right. Um. But yeah, I mean, this is it's a it's a very straightforward piece. Again, his mm-hmm. piano sonatas, there are exceptions. He he did write some longer ones, but his most popular ones and his most beloved ones are his shorter, more concise. Of just like this is just pure great piano songwriting. Yeah, yeah, and man, this this one does not stop, and the next one doesn't stop either. It's even more concise. It's the shortest one we got on the on the list. Yeah. So this one's more recognizable. I forgot the name. I knew it at one time. But, uh, okay. Come on, Spotify. Scroll. Uh, <laughs> oh, it doesn't say it. Can't remember. Yeah, it did, I, I'm pretty sure that this one. Oh. At least definitely oh, not. It's the Turkish not at the March or something. If, anyway. if there was, I never came across it. I am um, this. So you know those old like um, Casio keyboard piano things that would have the, or maybe it was Yamaha or something that had like the different songs that it would teach you how to do and show you which yeah. piece of it. Uh-huh. So um, I was like eleven or twelve, and we were visiting some family friends in California, and they had one of those. And we were there for about a week. And so over the course of the week, right, when you're 11 and 12 in California and everyone is wanting to stay home and, you know, you get bored because you're early teenager. Um, so I'm playing on this thing and it has this song as one of the things that it would teach you. And I remember really wanting to learn it because I thought the melody was so, so cool. And I was like, Oh, I can blow away all my friends at school. If I can like play this at some point or whatever. And I spent probably a whole afternoon trying to just learn the notes at like half speed. And I could not do it. Like I, I barely got to the point where I could play the melody, like the top melody. Mm-hmm. It was so without even cool. adding the, without even adding the bass. Yeah, to it, and that, and it was. It's of a very different rhythm. So, man, good luck if if you know how to play this, dear listener. 
send us a video because I want to see it. That would I would genuinely be impressed. Because uh, A, it sounds amazing, and B, it sounds really impressive too. And that's kind of that's the philosophy I guess that he was getting at was good sound, but also I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of put on a show as well because he's mm-hmm. yeah. This good lord, there's this is one of the most hook laden compositions he ever wrote. There's oh, yeah. like every moment is so easily hummable and so iconic, even in of itself. I mean, you've got the like that is iconic. You've got that you've got it's just it's amazing how many like all-time great melodies he was able to stuff into one composition yeah it's kind of like it's like the master of puppets of <laughs> oh my gosh of, I think you're right. Yeah, of classical where you just like before the first verse even starts, they wrote three of the greatest riffs of all time. Right. Right. Yeah. And no, I mean, all of those little moments are kind of ingrained into the collective consciousness mm-hmm. of every person who's ever been introduced to the Western style of music. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's like this is this is hummable from the, five, the from the time that you're four or five. Well, like my uh, my kids have like a little um, it's like a music cube where it just has like it's like this it's like a it's a cube shape, but it, on each side you can like press a button and it just like plays a little musical number. Like mm-hmm. it's meant for like one and two year olds. Mm-hmm. On that, you can press one of them and it plays that tune. And then if you press another one, it plays the um, one of the songs from Marriage of Figaro, the bum ba da dum da dum dum da da dum dum da da, which we've had that for a while, and we actually had had it stuck in our garage for a while, and we had just gotten a bunch of stuff back out and was getting a bunch of, and we were like, oh, we haven't seen this in a while. Um, our second son is at the age he would like this, and so he was playing with it. And I heard the the piano sonata one, and I was just like, "Oh yeah, that's that's in there." And then right after that, it played the Marriage of Figaro song. I was just like, "Wait a minute!" Yeah, both both of those are on there. What else was on there? Did you recognize? Um, I that, those were just the two that I paid attention to. Oh, okay. Um, but I just thought it was funny that both of those were on there after having done both of them on this podcast. podcast. Um, I'm pretty sure probably Ode to Joy was on there as well. Oh, yeah. We got an episode on that one. Shameless plugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've been plugging that one all episode. Yeah, um, <laughs> but, like, this is just – this is almost like one of those, like, baby's first classical songs that like yeah. is kind of like up there with like Ina Klein and Nocta music where it's just everyone just knows it because it's like on the little on the like the, the baby Einstein and all the little toys that have like some 
you know, royalty-free jingle playing on it. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's, I just, when I first heard this song, whenever, again, I kind of encountered this at the same time that I encountered uh, the concerto for two pianos in my initial delve into Mozart about six years ago. And I came across it, I was just like, I've never heard this before. This is really cool. But as soon as I heard it and liked it, I felt like I heard it everywhere. So it was one of those things I'm sure that I had heard it multiple times. I just had never paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's by far one of his most recognizable and beloved pieces of music. Yeah, definitely. I would say definitely because, you know, at that at that time when I was trying to learn this on that little, you know, twenty thirty dollar Yamaha keyboard, I was not into classical music at all. I was barely into what would be considered piano music, and I still thought it was super cool, right? And I I think that kind of that should be a testament to how good the composition is. That a good hook's a good hook. A good hook is a good hook, you know, and that's just that's just the way it is. And that's something I think we've we've been learning in this whole podcast in general that, you know, good music is something that really is objective. But the definition is so hard to find that you can Mm -hmm. find good music in every genre from just about, you know, every kind of artist on the face of the planet, every era. And I, I, yeah, like a good hook is a good hook. It doesn't matter what you're into. It's just the music has the power to grab hold of you and be like, no, this is, this is worth listening to. So I, I hope that uh, those of you who have been with the podcast for a while have experienced some, some growth in your musical tastes like I have. So anyway, I'm gonna. We're like three songs in. We're getting to the final thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> before <laughs> anyway. before we move on, um, this is the song that if you really want to kind of learn how sonata form works, this is like one of the easiest songs that you can pinpoint where the sections are, because you've got your um, you've got your exposition section, which is your two main hooks, the you put those there. That's your, as soon as it goes to the, that's when you get to your um, development section. And you've got, you've almost got those as bookends. And in the between, you've got this kind of like this long piano line. That's, you know, it's, it's definitely not a theme. It's not a hook. It's the one part of the song. That's not like, as much melodically driven as much as like just kind of it's just it's more of like a feel mm-hmm. and then you've got the recapitulation when it comes back to the and then your coda when he comes to the so if if you want to kind of just listen and and try and figure out how to read sonata form i don't think that there's an easier song to express that than this piano sonata 
it's Listen it's the song that made go ahead uh, i was just I was, gonna say this is I, uh this is the song that made me understand it i was i was saying that listening to you uh hum those little pieces has been quite entertaining uh high quality I, high quality <laughs> music i feel like i've just got an exclusive live performance I'm honored. You're really trying to flatter me here. I, yeah. I I'll mean, let you. I'll let you know if it works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's say, give our our dear farewell, our dear farewells to Mozart. Yeah, and, we've uh, we've been with Mozart for a long time, but it's it's time to officially yeah say Avida's in goodbye. Yeah. So long. It was it was a good run, but we got a certainly a more interesting character to talk about in uh, the man of Beethoven. Yes. So um, we are now going to be experiencing the other side of the coin, as well as just man, just a complete change of tone. Our our songs are about to get a lot longer. Um. So we're we're back to concerto here. Now this and the last song are from the same concerto because remember a concerto has three movements. So mm-hmm. this is this is actually the third movement. And oh. the one at the end is the first movement. So I kind of did a little bit of a reversal. I felt like it it flowed a little better with what came before and where I wanted to go with it. Okay. So I did I did a little bit of reinterpretation of what Beethoven initially intended, but you know, that is my that's my right as an American. <laughs> okay. So um so yeah this is his uh piano concerto in G movement mm-hmm. This concerto is often cited by music experts and critics as maybe being the greatest concerto of all time, regardless of instrument. Like it's, it's one of the ones that, that people will put into the discussion. Okay. And so I heard that before I even selected it and it's what made me go, well, now I got to go listen to it. And uh, I listened, I got through the end. It's like a, you needed to vote like 30 minutes to get through all three movements. But yeah, I would say longer than that because this first movement by itself is just, is 20 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on, the, on the third, which is 10. Yeah. But yeah, you get to the end of it. And you're just like, okay, yeah, that's, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That I was, I like the not genius. I like the genius, uh, like composition of it, because there's these really fast, and you know, it it literally has the word presto, because that's the that's the tempo, that's the feel, you know, in the title here in Spotify, right? Well, um, that's not the title. That's just in when you're doing these movements, right? Spotify is what speed it's at, right? But but it's not, in, the, it's not the presto concerto in the Spotify title is what i mean right so but you have these 
you have these really, really, really fast sections. And then, oh, my piano player's worn out or I'm worn out or whatever, right? Um, let's put a... Wait, that he ever I got worn I, I think that, I think maybe, well, because think about this. This is like a 45-minute deal, you know? Well, I guess probably, yeah, at the end of that, once you're getting into this third movement, you got to think that your piano player is just like, oh, my God. <laughs> right, right. So having those having those uh, orchestral moments between things to keep that melody going and, like, not bore the listener, but give your piano player, like, five seconds to just sit back and go, <gasps> okay, next part, right? Because, you know, I mean, this is... Beethoven was a was a, a a conductor, right? He wasn't yes. the one playing this one. Sometimes he would. Um, okay. Definitely, he was not. Once he really started to go deaf, I would say, like in his earlier works, which would have been like in the eighteen nineties, he would have been up there playing. Definitely not past that, and not at the time that he had wrote this mm -hmm. around the same time as symphony number no. five the early uh, eight as a sophisticated person would say so obviously like i mentioned there's more orchestration here now right so is that is that some was that a beethoven thing or was that like an increase in time thing now that we're we're further into I guess the eighteen, the eighteen aughts, as you would say. Um. Yeah. I mean, as we move into the Romantic period, orchestras were getting bigger. Um. One of the first things that will, I would say, probably the first thing we'll do in January in the Romantic period is talk about um, uh, Hector Berlioz and his Symphony Fantastique. Um. But he was someone he was part of the early romantic period and he wrote pieces that required an, a thousand piece orchestra. That would be so. Nice yeah. You pretty much had to like rent out the entire country of musicians to pull that off. Yeah. But um, whether or not it's bigger than like, say what Mozart had in his concerto for two pianos I can't say. I'm, I'm I'm not completely sure, but I wouldn't be surprised. But as far as the general practice and the idea of how big an orchestra is, yes, it was at the time of the turn into the Romantic period, it was getting bigger. Mm. Because Sorry. even though the even though the orchestra was established in the classical period, um, it did continue to grow as as the period moved on. Um, but I mean, you know, we had a fairly decent because I I believe there's horns because in this yes. ensemble, which yeah, there's there even, like, weren't. A little oboe bit. I would I would say the fact that we have horns here, I would say that he at least had everything Mozart had, and then if you add the horns, then sure we'll say that. Um, that it was a bigger orchestration and that does keep up with the, the theme of the time. So long way to say 
Yes, I think so. Yeah, and it's like they they even play more of an important part than, you know, of course, the one uh, piano concerto that Mozart did that we have here um, with, with, with orchestra. I would say it's not that they have a more important role. They have a vastly different role, which is instead of there being a fairly easy divide between soloist and orchestra, the line is a lot more blurred here. It's they're, they're, they're more working towards the same goal of just making this a dynamic overall musical piece rather than with Mozart, you get more of the idea that this is meant to be more of a traditional concerto solo piece. Yeah, okay. I, I, I see that. I, I feel like when, when Beethoven is writing a concerto, he's much less concerned about this is for soloing. And it's more of just like, this is just another type of music that I can use to, to do something cool. Mm-hmm. It's it's rather the the entire structure and the way that a concerto is written and built is just an excuse for him to just write something and just go this is going to be great but I'm going to use the rules of concerto to do it where you can feel like with Mozart it's maybe a bit more like playing to the convention of it and just doing it really really well and mm-hmm. so because of that you I think you have a a bit less of a of a distinction between this is the job of the orchestration and this is the job of the soloist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have less uh less structure, I guess, or less uh, boundaries, maybe I should say. Yeah. The thing I'm learning with Beethoven is that as as seeming as there being no structure there is structure it's just really really well hidden mm-hmm. yeah it's not it's not mindless uh, composition is what i mean it's um yeah or direct out of the box it's out of the box mhm right. it's also it's does it it's not as unlinear as you might think right even even or, the most unorthodox approaches to things are still approaches right yeah, um, we're not quite into the four minutes thirty three seconds kind of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, here. right. This is definitely still music, right? It's something yeah, that you'd be like, "Oh, that's a cool like recapitulation." I've heard that melody before. That was an interesting way of putting it back in. You know, there's still those moments here. Um, yeah, we've still got 150 years to go with that. Oh yeah, that is true. That is true. Although once uh, we get to the end of the romantic period, things are going to start getting weird. Yeah, avant garde. Yeah, which what I, is I avant garde. Um, like what the actual dictionary definition is? Oh no 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 no! As soon as you try to answer what is avant garde, you are no longer avant garde. Uh, you were trying to get me on a trick question. I saw I saw a video of. Uh, uh, what is avant-garde is obviously a spoof and he held you know he had a saxophone and he was like playing the saxophone he's like i am playing the saxophone and he takes it apart and he's like now do i have two saxophones and then he brought out a screwdriver and he said this is a saxophone 
you cannot tell me this is not a saxophone. And then he starts plinking the screwdriver and he says, I am playing the saxophone. <laughs> like, what in the world? So, yeah, that's going to be a very interesting set of episodes. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're not we're not there yet at all. This is definitely still, like, something that someone um, who is not, you know, well-versed in the weird oddities of, of music is going to be turned off by. You can definitely grab on to, I've heard this melody before, I've heard this theme before, kind of thing. But it's 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 packaged in a um, in a different way, and maybe, I, maybe if you're this not is really pick the time to pick it apart. You know, you're not going to see those different ways of doing things. But for a for a musician, it's it's kind of a rich rich something. He's not interested in writing pop music. He's interested in writing that emotional stuff. Yeah, this is this is like right at the edge of what a normal person would probably allow themselves to really digest and listen to right it's it's right on the edge of kind of getting into this is almost too weird but just normal enough to not lose your normal person yeah it it really toes that line yep and i think that that's a great line to toe yep and it's it's got hummable melodies like very hummable melodies i mean i think i've listened to this set four or so times and i can still remember different moments in this in this 10 minute long song that really explore some interesting things um and so i think that's that's a testament to the the writing ability that beethoven has for the piano concerto so yes all all that to say about his piano concertos right Let's uh let's switch to at least one sonata so you can get a little feel for that. Yeah, um we had talked about plenty of his piano sonatas in our uh in our bona fide Beethoven episode. Right. And so it was kind of like, do I wanna just do more sonatas or should I concentrate more on concertos which we hadn't looked at from Beethoven before? But then there is this piano sonata, the Appassionata, which is up there with the Moonlight Sonata as one of his most iconic piano works. And so I was like, I got to throw that in there. This is the first movement of it. And you want to talk about just like really going deep into the expressive variety of the piano. And just oh, yeah. you want to you want to get a real great idea of what it's capable of. Gosh dang, here it is. Yeah, lots of lots of very like loud and large chords and these very intense runs, but at the same time you have very very slow little like raindrop style notes. Mm-hmm. It's very. It's, Yes, it's it's got so much breadth and so much variety to it. Um, this is, I believe I had heard this explained that it is in sonata form, but that it does it in such a weird way that, like, again, if you aren't, like, a music student, if you aren't, like, really well-versed in theory and the mechanics and all of the all the really complicated ins and outs of music that you're not going to pick up on it. Like 
comparing that to um, the uh, Mozart Sonata in A major, where mm-hmm. I said that if you listen to that, even if you are a absolute beginner in music, you can understand sonata form by listening to that piece. If you try mm-hmm. to understand sonata form while listening to the first movement of a passionata, you aren't going to find it. <laughs> but also at the same time, it's, it's, you don't have to. Yeah. It's, it's not that kind of piece where it, it easily fits into, oh, this is, this is what it is. It just, it stands on composition. It's, just, it's, it's, it, it's only sonata in the sense of that it's, that's what it's officially called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about the, the, the super cool speed here. I love that in this recording, you can hear the piano player like breathe in before he goes to a fast bar, like hits a huge set of notes because it's so intense that it, that, yeah. Yeah. It's like that it's, is something I do like about this recording is that you can hear all the you can hear the guy that's recording it really really trying like really straight and he like he really pulls it off like the performer here this is this is crazy right and man I mean it's also just a testament testament to somebody who can do this kind of stuff still be like struggling to play a Beethoven piece. Like I cannot, I cannot imagine, you know, the first person who saw this sheet music and be like, really, you want me to do that? (laughs) Like there's no one's even going to like this or whatever kind of excuse. But I mean, here we are talking about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just so, it's so, so intense and so like all i say you know we talked about uh uh mozart and how his songs are very squared off and exact tempo and very technical and and, and performative perform maybe that's not, that's not the right word but you know what i'm you know the idea i'm trying to get across yeah um, yeah that uh this is this there's still some a performance aspect to this as well that there's a lot of drama going into things, you know, that, that there's an emotional this, that, and the other, and you're able to have time to breathe in, get those, you know, huge chords out, and that really adds to kind of the feel that the song's really going for. In a way, it's, it's cool. in a way, it's almost theater. It is. It's theater-made music. Yeah where you don't get as much of that sense from Mozart's piano music. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because he was the big opera writer. It, it just shows that that's not what he went to on his key, keyboard music. That's not what he was wanting to do. He was It was much more about performance music. Um, right. And Beethoven... He never really wrote. He only wrote one opera in his life. And even then, he did not really particularly enjoy that process. Is it is it considered one of the better operas? No, not necessarily. At least not that I'm aware of. That's kind of interesting. Okay. Maybe there's a correlation. 
Maybe. But um yeah, okay. it's you can uh you can you can hear that that theater aspect in his piano work in particular. I you can hear it in, in his symphony work as well, but I think his piano uh his piano compositions, that's where it right. it shines the most. Right, where you can you can almost imagine the performer like stand up or or stretch their arms in weird ways and make giant grandiose motions and it's very dramatic and and you know cinematic uh, where maybe you, you would picture somebody performing a mozart piece very you know back up straight and their arms out flat and and very economy of motion and everything and both are very impressive right we don't we don't want to compare them maybe we do um but we're not going to right uh well, we're comparing them. We're not saying one's better. They are really great uh, performance pieces in very different ways. I guess that's kind of what we've been trying to get across this entire uh, talking ourselves in circles moment. But it's fun to talk about because it's good music. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and move on to our our final piece. Our final piece. Again. Again, it's it's a bit of a an out of order placement, but this is back to his concerto number four, but the first movement instead of the third movement. Um, I felt like that this just has such a drama to it that it fits well as a piece, especially coming out of the Appassionata, that's so brooding and so emotionally intense to especially that intro where the piano comes in, which I have to point out that to have solo concerto was a huge controversial rule breaker back in when it first came out. Really? Yeah. Like that was something that no one had really done before. Usually in a concerto, you bring in the orchestration first and then the, solo instrument comes in like with how um mozart's concerto for two pianos that's that structure is way more normal Hmm. so for him to start on the piano that's immediately a statement of whatever you think is going to happen ain't going to happen nice it immediately for especially for people that listened back in that time immediately put them on the edge of their seats. The beginning of the first movement automatically keys you in that this is not going to be a rule-following composition. Man, I wonder even how would you do that today? Because we have all sorts of starts to songs now. Mm -hmm. We even got the weird voiceover, like you have a play happen before you start the song kind of thing. Close your eyes and begin to relax, right? It's like, how do you, how do you do something new now? I don't know. I guess we'll find out when it happens. And I guess, I mean, there's, there's the common belief that there is nothing new in music anymore. Oh. Oh, so famous quote by uh, Lord Kelvin. 
before all of quantum mechanics and special relativity was discovered, he said that there's no new science to be discovered, only more precision. And then all of a sudden we had these crazy discoveries in the early, or the early 20th centuries that completely blew out the water all our old theories about how the world operated. I think that like there's always the possibility that that could happen in music, right? And maybe it just takes just takes one band or maybe one person or one uh, genre to kind of maybe not the entire world but a subset of people to be like you know this is this is a whole new way of looking at music i don't know maybe maybe not but i tend to be optimistic about (laughs) maybe i'm completely wrong and music will have not changed until the day i die but i i'm gonna I'm going to stay optimistic. So I'm sure there's some great music that maybe some of our, our listeners are composing that uh, might make its way into the podcast. You never know. You never know. So that would be a very interesting story. But anyway, we're, we're talking about not future music. We're talking about past music. I have this problem with rabbit holes today, I guess. Oh, it's fine. (laughs) It makes, it makes for some good conversation. It, it does. That is true. Uh, so, yeah, immediately having the piano start, it's just like, okay, what's going to happen? Then the orchestration comes in. And the way that it develops, like, uh, when we talk about cadences in music, do you know what that, what I mean by that? Um, you mean like a... Like a six like, eight versus a four four feel. N- no, not like a cadence as in like um, like the difference between an open cadence and a closed cadence. Um, a closed cadence means that the melodic phrase ends and it feels like it's satisfied, resolved. Think of um, I'm gonna I'm doing a lot of humming tonight, but it's the best way I can explain. Think back to concerto for two pianos. And then it starts again. That is a closed cadence because when you get to the end of it, you don't feel any suspense. That melodic line is complete by itself. Yeah. Now think back also to concerto where you where sometimes within that and it would go to that weird chord that would be an open cadence because it's unresolved and it requires the next section to come in to help bring it back to resolution we're getting some music theory with lucas here yes yes we are so the big the other big shocking thing about the intro of this uh, movement is that when the orchestral is part is going, it's working towards closing the cadence at the end. And right when you think it's about to close, the piano all of a sudden just jumps back in and completely takes it off the rails. Mm-hmm. It And also, it creates a lot of argument between music scholars on is that when the development section starts is it finishing the exposition segment they don't know because it's so ambiguous 
It comes in at such a weird time. It it goes in such a weird direction that people are like, there's arguments over when the piano comes in, that's when the development section starts. But then other people are like, no, because the cadence didn't close at the end of the development section or the, the exposition. And so it's 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 a big argument between music historians and critics about exactly because it is in technically sonata form so beethoven was really messing with people on this one he's still messing with people yeah people still don't have a clear answer no one can agree on it it's pretty awesome it's pretty awesome <laughs> yeah and so the way I heard it say it was just like if you thought that uh, um, that people were on edge after that intro, by this point, everyone had completely given up on trying to figure out what the heck was going to happen in this. Yes, it's exactly what you should do: subvert those expectations. Mm-hmm. And man, I will say that just about nobody was better at that than Beethoven. He knew he knew how to break the rules in the best possible way to where the rules weren't broken for the sake of breaking them but that he knew exactly how to get as much benefit out of it as possible yeah there there are a lot of like little moments in here like i just got to one at about the eight minute mark when um like the there's like the orchestra and they're like dun 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 and the piano comes in with a very very light and like that's pretty interesting like technically you're still doing the rhythm but now we're going to go to another part of this exploration section that was queued up by this technically on paper same thing i don't know it's weird Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty cool, um, and there's and there's it also shows off the the crazy range of the piano. You have these really intense low parts and these really light, very high up on the parts of the piano. I think somewhere at the six minute mark, uh, that there was like this this beautiful arpeggio that went all the way to the top of the range of the piano and did something way up there while the strings were being all cool. Um, it's just it's just so many small moments in here that are just like you know this it's kind of nice and they're all stuffed into one song that it's not i'm going to explore this because i think that's what modern artists do is they're like oh this is a cool moment i'm going to explore this multiple times in one song but this is a 20 minute song full of great moments every 30 seconds that he could have fleshed out fully into into these themes, but but he chose to blow everyone away in a different way every thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. Which is like it it shows that he knows he can come up with the next good idea over and over again. So, so. yeah, it just it he really operated from a pure genius level. And again, he was the first composer to really approach com- composing through the sense of artistic and personal expression. 
and this is the first time that you can listen to a person's music and almost see into their soul. Mm. And it's, it's quite fascinating because again, that's something we almost take for granted now, especially in today's world where it's just like, everything is all about, I gotta, I gotta express how I'm feeling. This is me in a song, you know, writing about my personal experiences that was even in Mozart's time, that was not at all what you did. Beethoven was the first one to just go, my music is my way of communicating myself to the world. What you are hearing is not just by Beethoven, it is Beethoven. Whoa. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, in compositions before, that to a certain extent always found its way unconsciously into the music, but again, it was unconscious. It was because of just certain composers are always going to write a specific way. Wow. But it was never an objective by them. It was just something that just happened to bleed through. Beethoven, especially when his hearing started to go, that was his way of, in a way, almost creating himself a reason to live. I'm feeling my brain expand. Keep keep going, man. This is good. Because around the the podcast is all about around the time. So like 1802 to 1805 was when he went through his darkest period. It was when his hearing had almost all but gone. And he was really struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts and, just thinking like, I am this great musician. It's what I love more than anything. And the thing, my biggest asset is being taken away from me, my hearing. What, what point is there to keep living? And it was during this grappling that he wrote the majority of his most celebrated and beloved work because that music came out of that period of intense emotional struggle. And in some ways, this music is a rebellion against God, against nature, against man, to say that, you know, all forces that are working against me right now, this is my middle finger to you. I'm going to make this incredible music in spite of what's happening to me right now. It's very metal. Yeah. (laughs) The more you look into it, the more metal... Beethoven is and it's and it's amazing yeah and so that's where you get pieces like this this is where you get your symphony number fives your moonlight sonatas I mean this is this is this is the the place where all that the emotional turmoil that this was all born from wow and again what instrument could better convey that than the piano a, an instrument that can more than any other truly sing and convey such a large range of emotions in such a short amount of time. Well, I'm convinced. I don't know what I'm convinced of yet, but I am certainly convinced. You'll, you'll get it all in your mind once you get the final thoughts. I think I will. 
And I think it's about time for us to move there. So we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about uh, the piano. And since this is our last one on the classical era, our, our final thoughts about classical music as well. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you are joining us for the very first time, you have picked quite an episode because we're in the middle of our music history spinoff series, but more of that in a moment. If you like what you hear, be sure to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Leave a a review. Um, If you want to get in on the conversation about music, about the podcast, and maybe even suggest an artist for us to do in the future, go to our Instagram and Facebook page at Good Music Podcast. There's a lot of great content there and announcements of upcoming episodes and some more interesting things. If you really love good music, you consider good music like a fine wine as our uh, late and great, well, not late, but great uh, third co-host, Ethan Scott, will say. Uh, (laughs) uh, Then check out in the description, there is a uh, link to a Patreon page, which is our Patreon page. Patrons, just for a few bucks a month, will get early access and exclusive access to content, including our After Hours segment that we do for every episode on the worst songs of every artist. And that is some of the most fun that we have on this podcast. So you do not want to miss out if that sounds like something you're even remotely interested in. Um, So last week we talked about Phoenix, right? Yes, we did. French band, but all their music is in English. That was a really fun episode. It was something that was, that was. outside of our wheel, well, at least mine. Um, and of course, we had ended the episode on the wonderful construction of Love, Love Like a Sunset. And that really got me in kind of like a, a prog mood. I was about to say a prog funk, but that's kind of an oxymoron. Uh, <laughs> and oh, I just, shoot. <laughs> I've just. I've just been I've been listening to a lot of a uh, lot of prog that I've already listened to a lot of Genesis, a lot of like classic dream theater and stuff, and picking out the sounds that I would hear and being like I've never really appreciated the sound craftsmanship that that mm-hmm. somebody like Jordan Rudess would do, and and it's weird that an that an episode like that would make me appreciate a 
remotely related genre so much more. Um, of course, I did listen to, um, what's it called? Uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, that's what it is. Sorry, which is a uh, an allusion to our episode today. Yeah, that was which not we should, intentional. We should We should go ahead and get into that. So I mentioned that we were talking about our, or continuing on our music history spinoff series. So we're going through the history of music. For those of you who this is your first introduction to the series, go into the history of music, starting from the very first recorded music on our very first episode over a year ago now. Um, yeah, yeah. So moving through all of history, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, uh, the medieval times, into the Renaissance. We did all the Baroque period, and now we are in the classical era and we're talking yeah. about a very specific instruments, as far as I understand. Yeah, so this is going to be um, our last episode on the Baroque, or on the classical period. Um, it's we've we've gotten to sit with it for a good amount of time, but I feel like this is going to be a great way to kind of cap things off. Um, and also, just to clarify, we do this episode the last episode of every month, so this is uh, this is a once a month thing, but. This is also going to be our last one of the year because um, at the end of next month, instead of doing our music history, we're going to do a special uh, 2021 episode. We'll look at some of the best songs to come out from this year, talk about them, kind of talk about the podcast in general, kind of some of what were some of our favorite discoveries. It's it's a bit more of a laid back um, conversational episode. And so um, when we come back, in January with this series, we're going to be moving to a brand new time period that honestly will probably spend almost the entire year, if not the entire year going through it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because there's there's so, there's so much and not just so many artists, but so many unique um, ways that people expressed and created music. So um, we'll be we'll be in the romantic period. So this is this is kind of not only our our farewell to uh, classical period, but our farewell to our music history series for this year. Sad. And uh, yeah, but it's been it's been really fun. It is. I, I didn't I didn't know initially when I started this how much if people would like it, if I would like it. I mean, I had a feeling I would, but also I wasn't completely sure. And <laughs> Um, whether or not I would be still dutifully going at this series. And man, it's been like one of my favorite things to do every month. It's been pretty rewarding seeing where our modern music has come from. It helps and I know put the, a lot of things in perspective. It's been a lot of research for you as well. Yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I could probably get my master's in music history at this point. <laughs> oh my. I've, because I'm I'm literally like pretty much taking like free online college courses to do to get ready for these episodes. Um, I I do want to I don't do this enough, but I do want to start um, giving shout outs to the sources that I'm using for my uh, for our episodes. Um, I uh, I have Audible and Audible is not like paying me to say this. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, uh oh. <laughs> Uh, no, this is not a sponsorship segment, uh, but I do want to 
kind of for people that want to also find out a lot of the stuff that I've learned as well as all the extra stuff. Cause there's so much that they talk about that. I don't even get a chance to say um, on audible. They have this series called the great uh, or the, the great courses. And pretty much it's just, it's a series of lectures. Usually like, you know, it's like 24 hours in length each uh lecture is like 45 minutes and um there are so many music uh music classes on there that uh i have taken that have just been very very useful like i literally don't know how i would have learned all this had i not had that and so um for this episode in particular there is a uh a lecture or a series of lectures on the piano and the great piano pieces. So that's what we're talking about in this episode is the piano, the great invention of the classical period um, is kind of the last thing that I was like, as far as invention, there were, there were three big inventions of the classical period musically. It was the symphony, the opera buffa, which was when we talked about Marriage of Figaro, the comedy opera, and the piano. Those were the three things that either were created or when they were in their infancy when the classical period started, and that by the end, they had become the dominant forms of the classical period. They had completely supplanted what it had kind of replaced so like the symphony, when it started, it was seen as a um, a lesser instrumental uh, creation as opposed to, say, a concerto, which was the far more popular instrumental piece from the Baroque period. Uh, you Opera buffo very deftly supplanted the opera seria and the piano not only single-handedly toppled the harpsichord but really became the most important instrument i mean really maybe of all time wow that's a big uh it, it is but i think the there's a serious argument for that though yeah i the piano has kind of become the the instrument and it's that happened yeah it that happened during the classical period it, it it the piano was created in the early 1700s um it went through a lot of iterations most people that played them before 1750 hated them thought that there was no way that this instrument would ever um amount to anything bach very famously was just like this instrument will never catch on this is i mean but that also just shows how much work still needed to be done right. to the piano to to put it together they were they were very rare few people ever got to test them before 1750 um they were not made the same way and sounded the same as what we would think of today um really the pianos as we know them now didn't finalize in their making until the late 1800s. So even by the late 1700s, which is the height of the classical period, um, as the piano really started to 
increase in popularity, it still was not super common to the piano that we know today. It it had a long journey as far as the way that um, the way that the the dynamics worked. Um, the early pianos didn't have sustain pedals on them. Um, mm. Just intricacies in the mallets and. Um, the expansion of the keys themselves, the original pianos were much smaller, did not have near as many keys. Um, they grew larger as time went on. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh huh. Um, and it just, it took a long time because the harpsichord for a good 300 years was the keyboard. It was. It was just. It was, had become so rooted in tradition that it. It kind of took a while, and honestly, it took Mozart to really break that. Mozart was the first major composer to really embrace the piano and to not only play it for a considerable amount of time, but to also really discover what its capabilities were. Capabilities like. Uh... Like the, ex the ex yeah, the expressiveness that you could wrest from it, and the types of compositions that you could now create with it. Because originally, people were just writing for it the same way that you would a harpsichord. And just as a just as a refresher, um, a harpsichord is is built in ways on the outside a lot to the same as piano. It's still you would play it the same way. It's still keys that you sit down and hit with, but the, diff the biggest difference between them is that the strings are plucked more like a harp rather than how with a piano you have mallets that strike the strings rather than pluck them. So it allows you to hit them at different intensities. Um, it allows for sustain. Like if you were to play a, a harpsichord, no matter how hard or soft you hit it, it's going to be the exact same um, dynamic loudness every single time so you mm. couldn't get softer and quieter you couldn't have any expressive capabilities uh, kind of any yeah but i mean also we talked about in the broke period that wasn't something that was as much a priority it wasn't something that was necessarily um sought after but once you get into the classical period where um, the emotional expression starts to become more and more uh, necessary, then now all of a sudden something like the piano becomes more and more important. And once the piano hits that level in the 1780s, really most everyone just abandons the harpsichord altogether. Wow. It, it really took someone like Mozart kind of showing everyone, hey, check this out. Like, Mozart was obsessed with them, and it, it became his favorite instrument. And so I guess that's going to play into, I guess this is the big reason why this is our last classical episode. It's going to play into our next era. Oh, yeah. Once, you could, you could still say that the piano only really majorly affected about half the classical music uh, of its time. But once you get into the romantic period, it is without a doubt, the piano is hugely important. There are 
several classical composer or romantic composers will look at that like the piano was pretty much the only thing they did. Wow. And they were world-renowned, considered among the greatest composers of their day. And they only wrote for piano. Uh, that's that's the way that uh, Frederick Chopin was. Of like the 400 and something pieces he wrote, like only 10 of them were not solo piano works. That's a, something something like that. That's quite the ratio there. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, people regard Chopin as one of the greatest of the romantic, not just piano players, but composers in general. And the piano was what he intentionally limited himself to because he could get so much out of it. Um, and especially when you get into the romantic period where emotional expression and personal expression becomes the main focus, then no other instrument could communicate that as well as the piano. Yeah, no, that is, that is certainly true with that dynamic quality. Like, do you, so going back to how the piano subverted the harpsichord as, as the keyboard, right? Would you say that more or less of an extent that has happened with the modern synthesizer? Like, would you say that's a similar comparison or is that? Yeah, kind of in a way, because the synthesizer has, has did as far as sound palette, mm -hmm. what the piano did to the harpsichord. I think that that would be a pretty apt comparison to make. Because you 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 still again the the functioning and the layout of it is still relatively the same. Mm -hmm. If you know how to play a piano, you know at least how to play a synthesizer, even if you don't know how to. In the same way that a harpsichordist could walk over to a piano and still know, okay, that notes that, that notes that, but now they have the extra challenge of I can't just it, how I play it matters so much more now. Mm -hmm. Same thing with going to the synthesizer; you can't just think about it's going to give me this sound. Now you've got an endless sound bank of sounds to choose from. And so it all of a sudden widens everything. Yeah. Um, although I would say the big difference being that um, a lot of people can play synthesizer and not have to be super proficient in being a, uh, being a player. And you'd have to for piano? Oh yeah, I would it is I would say it's much more difficult to play the piano than the harpsichord. It was a it was a step up in difficulty because again, you did not have to think about how hard you were hitting the keys with the harpsichord. You could literally play it almost as as clumsily as you would like as long as the timing and the fingering is right and it would sound the same. Piano it's you have to add in slight touches. You've got to intensify here, lighten up here, while still maintaining a very incredible amount of technicality. If you'll notice, all of the really difficult harpsichord pieces really are not near as complex as all the really difficult piano pieces. It also could be that just composers were getting better and mm -hmm. players were getting better, but I think also the fact that the piano was innately more difficult to play raised the skill level of the people that were playing it. Ooh. 
Okay. I think that there's I think that there's a pretty justifiable relationship there. I think there is too. I mean, because you look at modern synth music, and you don't have the super fast, crazy runs and stuff that we have in the music we're going to talk about later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, Mozart was the man that brought the the piano into the the limelight, if you'll say, but. We also have to say that the man who kept it there was Beethoven. Um, we're gonna we're gonna only be looking at two composers tonight, because yeah. when it come when it comes to classical piano work, I mean, to be honest, there were really only two. <laughs> there were two major ones, and it's Mozart and Beethoven. I know that we've talked a lot about Mozart. This is like really it's our fourth music history episode in a row to mention him because he was also in our symphony episode although yeah so (laughs) but at the same time to to go through the classical period and not mention mozart's piano work it just it wouldn't have been right Mm -hmm. um most people when they think of mozart they always think of his piano works first i find we Mm -hmm. like your normal person we we had talked about in our opera episodes that those people that are more music historians and 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 know more about Mozart as a complete artist tend to focus more on his opera. But like your normal everyday person that's like, oh, I'm going to put on some Mozart. They're going to go to his piano stuff. Mm-hmm. He was he was the first great piano player. And um, because of that, a lot of his piano work was in a way quite simple but at the same time like you imagine a lot of these piano works coming out in the time that they did and it being this honestly probably quite revolutionary sounding thing yeah so yeah. it's got a it's uh, got a completely different sound from a lot of the other things that we've heard mhm so yeah, I mean, revolutionary. I think would would be the correct word, because yeah. I mean, no, nothing sounds like a piano. No, it's a it's a incredibly unique sounding instrument. Right. I, one of the worst jokes that I ever heard someone say was, "What do you get when you cross a drum and a guitar? A piano." Um. Well, mechanically, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just because it's it's percussive and melodic at the same time yeah because again you you open up a piano it's it's percussive yet yet you don't think of it as a percussive instrument it's also very very complex yes from from mechanical perspective i i once we have a um upright piano in our house just like everybody else right um and I opened it up one time when I was younger. I was like 12 or 13 because I was just playing piano nonstop because I was bored. And that's kind of what really got me into music first. Uh, but I opened it up because I'm like, I wonder what the mechanics of this are. Because, you know, you're a 12, 13-year-old kid. You just are curious about things. And it was the most uh, an enigmatic thing I think I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like you'd hit a key and then this very complex machine would, would move 
And the whole system is so much bigger than what you can see from the top or from the side or which, however you open it. It's so complicated and so uh, fragile. Like I can't imagine if, if, if one of those pieces broke, like <laughs> the repair job is just so complicated. So, I mean, there, there's no surprise that it, it, it would have taken so many iterations to get right. And, mm -hmm. there's, and there's no surprise. There's nothing that sounds like it. I mean, you could say that a harpsichord sounds kind of like uh, uh, a guitar with a interesting tuning or like a mandolin, you know, but a piano, like, what is it? <laughs> what is it? It sounds like a piano, but it does sound uh, a very emotional because it's a little bit duller. You know, there's still that strong attack, but it's got that, that dull full tone that's so much more than just a plink you know so uh -huh. i'm sure composers went crazy over it once it uh once it got proven to be useful yeah um it's just again i think what's what we take for granted is that since the piano is such a classic instrument we just assume that along with the, all the other instruments that it's just always been there yeah. And I think one of the more interesting things about the story of music is that the piano was like the last thing to really get there as far as like classical instruments, like something that you would expect to see like in an orchestral symphonic setting. Because everyone had a p like most people have had a piano at some point in their life, have right. taken a piano lesson. Like it's just, it's almost like, it's like part of being an american <laughs> right you, right you take piano lessons at some point um in many ways the way that kind of we probably i'm sure people now view the guitar as just like as oh it's just this instrument that's just always been there mm -hmm. and no it really hasn't yeah but but yeah um so mozart um brought the piano to the spotlight and then Beethoven just completely wrecked the piano and all piano players forever on after he. So I would like to say that Mozart showed what the piano could do musically and Beethoven showed what the piano could do emotionally. Interesting. Okay. Because yeah, you listen to a, Mo a lot of Mozart's and, I don't I don't like to make big sweeping gestures because there's always exceptions but if I were to try and summarize into a general statement a lot of Mozart's piano pieces are really vehicles for great melodic interplay the fact that you can use two hands at once that you have this wide range of um of tones to work with you can go high you can go low you can go soft you can go loud um and that you can really have the sound of quite a full ensemble with one instrument. Mozart really used that to go, wow, look at all these these melodies that really mm -hmm. you can't play on any other instrument. Mm -hmm. But then when Beethoven came, he really showed how expressive and emotive the piano could be as a tool of inner self-expression. And I think that that's why along with his symphonies, his piano music has has become so iconic of him. I mean, we we actually have done a 
a Beethoven episode completely separate from our music history. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the piano songs that we talked about, it was just like, it's, it's insane how much emotional quality he pulled from that one instrument. Yeah. Like just, just think of thinking back to the moonlight sonata. Yeah. It was just, and, that was just playing in my head. Yeah. And the pathetique and fear release and, you know, all those great works. And it's just, you look at it, it's just like, it's just, it's just one instrument. It's just one person. And yet you can feel all of these complex emotions as you're listening to it. Yeah. And Beethoven absolutely was the one that, and I would say really a lot with his piano work ushered in the romantic era. So you had mentioned that Mozart used the piano to to play with both hands. Was that not something you could do with a harpsichord? Well, you could, but again, it's the fact that you can have multiple dynamics going on at the same time. Like the 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 two handedness on piano is so much more um, clear. Y- yes than with the harpsichord because again with the harpsichord there's such a small range of sound that you can get out of it instead of um instead of it sounding like you have two hands on one instrument it kind of just sounds like maybe there's two harpsichords if that makes any sense because the the range is so similar and the sound so similar that it doesn't feel like you've got you know you can, it was just like, oh, it's just another harpsichord that's come in. But with the piano, you can you can really feel the fact that you've got two hands working together on oh. the same instrument. Oh, so like the, the 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 highest note on a piano sounds very different than the lowest, but that's not yeah. with a harpsichord. Yeah, I mean, obviously you can tell the tone's different, like the, the pitch, but you know, the fact that they're both going to ring out at the exact same volume, it kind of takes away the contrast. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't okay. accent anything. You can't emphasize anything. The only way you can really emphasize is if you put pauses. That is kind of limiting. I mean, now that you think about it, because we talk about like dynamic changes all the time and this, uh, spinoff series now because that's something that a lot of uh, composers started to play with earlier in this series. Mm-hmm. But um, it's so weird to think about that there's very small dynamic changes just in the way that you play things. Like, oh, I'm going to accent slightly accent this first note of this run and maybe the last or something. And that's not something you think about because the general dynamic of the song doesn't change from that first note to that last of that very short, you know, bar and a half melody, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's crazy. That's like something that we really do take for granted. That is, I like the interesting perspectives we get from this series. There's been a, yeah. there's been multiple answers that you've given to my questions that I did just straight up did not expect. So this is really good. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, this episode is also going to kill I'm going to I strategically put this to where I'm going to kill a lot of birds with one stone here. So the biggest bird, the 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 heftiest bird being the piano. Um it's also our way to kind of wrap up 
the classical period. We get to talk a little bit more about Mozart and Beethoven. This is also going to be our way to talk about concertos in the classical period and how they have changed from Baroque to classical, because we do have um, a split between concertos and sonatas in this episode. I don't know if you noticed I mean, in our song selection. You could look on the Spotify and see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know. I didn't know if you were looking at the song titles or not. Not particularly. But yeah, so so getting to talk some more about um, concertos, as well as talking about this thing called the sonata, which yeah. is uh, something that more or less was created during the classical period and became a very prominent um, mode of solo work. The sonata. Yes. Have, and we've we talked about... This? So we have talked about the sonata in our Beethoven episode. Right. So if, if, it's, if you're thinking, I think we've talked about this before, that, that would be where it was from. Okay. We have not talked about it in this series. So what might be the the historically significant introduction of the sonata? So the sonata is similar to the concerto in the way that it's a three-movement instrumental um, composition, but a sonata is going to be for a solo instrument. So it's just one instrument. You can't have a sonata that has multiple instruments coming in and out. So, and... Really, the sonata was came up tandem with the piano, and so the piano has by far become the most popular instrument to use in a sonata. Not to say that sonatas and other um, instruments don't exist, but um, I mean, it's just they're not near as common. The vast majority of sonatas are going to be for the piano. Mm-hmm. Um. There's, there's, there is a difference between a sonata and what's called sonata form. So a sonata form, and it's really easy to pick out sonata form in Mozart's piano pieces. It's really hard to pick it out in Beethoven's pieces because he like, he has such a weird way of going at it that you won't notice it unless you like study music and can read sheet music. And have a very intense knowledge of theory. Um, But when we get to both of uh, Mozart's sonatas that I picked out, they're in sonata form, and it's very clear to see the way that it's structured. Okay. But the way that you can think of of sonata form is that you um, you have your exposition, which is your introduction of themes, Usually there is a structure to that as well. You have your A theme, your B theme, your A theme. Um, and then you have your um, your developmental section, which is kind of where things get a little more experimental. It's where you can take the themes that you introduced in the exposition and kind of go off on tangents with them. It's it's the it's the part in the piece where you would say that a lot of perhaps the soloing would happen, mm-hmm. and then you have the recapitulation where the uh, where the themes return again, 
as they did in the exposition. And then optional section, but fairly common is that you can have a coda at the end. Where you kind of return. Uh, no, more kind of like have something unique come in just to give things a good finality. Oh, okay. Because the, the recapitulation is where everything returns. But then you can have a coda at the end to kind of put a period on it. Period. Some coda, Some codas can be a couple bars long. Something like with Beethoven, he'll make his coda three minutes long. <laughs> that is... That is very Beethoven. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the Sonata... Real, I would say the Sonata really... Beethoven just abused the Sonata so much, but also took it to its absolute glory. I would, I would say that no one did Sonata better than Beethoven did. They really, other than his symphonies, became his main show of creative power, and I and I do really mean power, because the thing about Beethoven is that he was originally trained as an organist, like the huge, big church pipe organs, mm -hmm. and the way that you play those is you have to beat the crap out of them. Yeah, cause because you have to like the, pump them with your feet or something. Yeah, and just it requires a lot more muscle to push the notes out. Where a harpsichord is, you can give it the slightest touch and it'll do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, so um, think of also the difference between the way that Mozart writes and plays piano music and the way Beethoven does is that Mozart came from a harpsichord background first. That's what that was the keyboard he learned on before he discovered the piano, and Beethoven just learned the organ before he discovered the piano. And I feel like, I feel like this is starting to turn into a normal episode where we're talking about the different influences of the artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that that abs absolutely makes a difference because Mozart's piano pieces also have a have an elegance to them. They have this almost like you could you could feel a bit of a the harpsichord style coming into it where it's very much constantly moving notes and everything is very measured. But also at the same time, he is showing the piano side of it with the – I would say mostly with dynamics. Hmm. Um, he's not going to be having tons of like tempo changes and like wild swinging – um, uh, mood changes where Beethoven is playing it as if his life depends on it. <laughs> and My goodness. Uh, many pianos Wrong. have been destroyed by him because oh. he just was so hard on them that the pianos could not withstand the, the beating that they took from him. Not wow. because he was angry with them, but that's just the way he played. And whenever he played, that was almost it was almost like a way for him to exercise whatever demons were in him at that moment. That's pretty metal. Mm-hmm. That's the precursor to the Jimi Hendrix burn the Yeah, Be <laughs> Beethoven really was quite metal. 
it's kind of awesome though. But yeah, you are right that like Mozart's music, most part from what we've heard, very like, you know, maybe, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's very, uh, everything is perfectly uh, squared off and, and all the tempos are exact and very clinical, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the pop music. Well, and, it's, and it's the, it's it the great really pop impressive. music of its time. It sounds really impressive, too. I mean, to, to be able to play at that speed, unwavering, not changing tempo and whatever, that's really, really top-level technical skill. Um, and, and Beethoven, like the stuff that we talked about in our original Beethoven episode, and the songs that we'll talk about here, there's just random, like, slow-down sections, you know? And it sounds awesome you know it may not sound impressive to play something super slow but from a from a compositional standpoint it's great right mm -hmm. and it, it makes all of the more fast parts sound a whole lot more you know technical the way that they're supposed to feel um, and that really helps when your songs are 10, 20 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, uh, that was the next thing I was going to say. If you notice, I mean, it's going to be inevitable that a, a good amount of this episode is going to be comparing Mozart and Beethoven. We're really kind of almost putting them head to head here. <laughs> yeah. Not, but the, the goal is not to talk about who's better because honestly, to have to pick between the two, it's, it's not, there's no point to it. Right. Because they also weren't trying to accomplish the same thing, mm -hmm. except for the fact that they were both trying to make the best music they could, but their approach was completely different. Um, I just I wanted to point out the way they're different, so that way you can see how with this one instrument, the piano, you can have two widely different um, music that comes from it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Well, what? Uh, well, I guess we've been talking. I was going to say, what are we going to be listening to in this in this set of songs? But we've been talking about that for uh, for about forty or so minutes now. Yeah. So uh, I I think that this is a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the six piano works from the classical period that we have selected. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got finished talking about piano music during the classical period and the great piano works of Mozart and Beethoven. The way that you can listen to these songs is there's a link in the description of the episode. Make sure that you go and check out these songs. It would be so sad if you got to this point in the episode and you never listened to these songs. So um, we highly recommend you go check them out. But now it's time to give our final thoughts. So, Grant, um, how are you feeling about piano music specifically from the classical period and the classical period in general since we are now going to officially be leaving it behind us? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the classical period. I think we went – like we had a full 
swing from one direction to the other, right? I mean, we started with music that had a harpsichord, right? Not even a piano yet. Um, everything was maximum dynamics for most of the time, you know? Um, the tempo rarely varied. Things were always big and grandiose and, you know, Baroque, so to speak, right? Um, you got the gold-plated uh, everything and huge organs and, and everything is a string accompaniment. Um, giant choirs if you are, you know, uh, handle, right? And then now, you know, through the course of the classical period, we went from music for those who had money to music for those who um, are just willing to listen. And now you have with Beethoven music for the composer themselves, right? And with that, you bring a lot of that emotion. And now we don't have to follow the same tempo the entire time. We don't have to be all big all the time, right? We don't have to this, that, and the other. But it's still like, it's music. Like, all of that is good music. Everything that we've talked about on this whole journey from the end of Baroque to now has been objectively some of the best music in history that everybody knows. I mean, the Hallelujah Chorus, right from the Baroque era, is was my mom's, you know, cell phone ringtone back when I was a kid, right? And now in this episode we have the um the turkish march or whatever it is uh sonata number 11 right and that's a widely recognized piece of music and it's so weird it's like the classic the classical era is the classics right and i i get you know handel's messiah was not in the classical era but we were close right we were getting there um and you have some of your biggest names during this time right it's just, it's a weird thing to think about that this section of 50 years had a inexplicable, uh, irreversible effect on music that shot it off in a new direction that, that really has philosophically led to where we are today. I mean, music today is all about personal expression, right? You, it, you will be hard-pressed to find a song that has nothing to do with the person writing it, right? That, that lyrically, it's not about, you know, what they're thinking or what they're feeling or whatever. And to think that that started here is super mind boggling, that that wasn't something that always was the case. But, you know, if you look at the history and that's, the point of this spinoff, you know, if you look at the history, it makes sense. And now with the added context we have, we can appreciate the music that we have that much more. Kind of like our our Phoenix episode, how I started this whole episode off, that a band that I never listened to, but listening to one song, talking through it, made me see a completely different genre that I've listened to a million times in a new way. And, and have that added context of, ooh, I'm going to pick out the cool sounds now that, that these synth, uh, these synthesizer users 
synth players. I don't know if you'd call them synth players because they synthesize the sounds, but can make <laughs> and and um, I don't know. It's 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 weird. It's like history repeats itself, and everything is just infinitely self similar, and and I don't know. It's just super cool on the piano side of things. Obviously, piano was my first instrument, just like you know. Uh, 7.8 billion other people I'm sure and it's just to, for it to be the last one to come along is so weird and I liked I liked having the proper introduction that this entire series leads up to the next episode so this entire series has led up to this moment where we finally get the introduction of a solo instrument that you can very very easily affects the dynamics and turn it into something very emotional and that's very powerful and i mean you saw that here that you can use it as a technical tool that that mozart did or you can use it as an expressive emotional tool like beethoven did and i thought that was really really cool i think that if i were to listen on um i would probably i would probably spend a little bit of time in piano concerto number four I think I, I'd like to listen to the whole thing in context just to see what other interesting ideas lie in wait in that second section, second uh, movement, I should say. Um, and that, that should be an interesting listening experience. So we'll see if I have enough time to get around to that. Um, it is Thanksgiving break at the time we're recording. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure I'll have time. It's just am I going to be motivated enough? I think I will, though. It was great. It was great. The music that I heard was great. Um, you cannot deny, I think, the recognizability and the simplicity, but the power of Piano Sonata number 11, the Mozart, third Mozart Sonata we have here. Well, the second Sonata, third Mozart song we have here. Um, just because I always recognized it as being just a really cool melody that has so much more... Um, technical requirement than I thought and that makes me appreciate it a lot because I know firsthand just how hard that song is to A, learn and B, play um, and I I am at a loss. I cannot do it. So I I just have a personal respect for that. So that's the reason why it's my favorite. Anyway, that's my final thoughts. Just some crazy ramblings of a, of a 20 year old uh, who has no no intense music history experience but we do have a music historian here right so lucas what are you oh yeah thoughts? um by the way i am no expert on any of this so if anyone hears me say something that's completely wrong i apologize um i am learning just as much as you guys every week so um, this is just something that I love. And I hope to officially be a music historian one day. This, I guess you could say this is my path towards it, my self-made path. Um, but I, I'm, I'm still wary to give myself that title yet. But okay. I appreciate the kind words. Um, gosh, the classical period. Um it's what everyone thinks of and it's got all of the most recognizable music in it, especially from Mozart and Beethoven. 
so much so that I think that you can almost take it for granted. And there's so many people that understand that it's great, but have never taken the time to really find it and to examine it and to give their own estimation of it. And the last time that I had studied the classical period was when I was very new to this topic of music history. And I thought that I understood what it was. And I've found that as I've returned to it for this, uh, for this series that I really didn't understand it at all. And now I feel like I have such a deeper, not only knowledge, but love and appreciation for this music. This in my opinion, is the true birth of pop music and modern music. Even the Baroque period still, it set all of the groundwork. It, it still just kind of missed a little bit of that soul with the exception of what Bach did. But Bach also was such an anomaly of his time. But classical music is where you can really see the birth of everything that we listen to now. Um, all the great pop music from Mozart, the number of times we talked about how metal Beethoven is, uh, but even just the birth of self-expression through music. I mean, it's just the classical period is truly really when everything started to come together. And we, we really started to understand truly what music was capable of. And I think that you just can't deny how powerful it is. Um, and then as far as the piano, um, that it's another thing that I think that we take for granted. And I, it was refreshing for me after being so long in this series and not hearing any piano to all of a sudden have it just really just burst in like this. It's like, it's like a gasp of fresh air where it's just like, ah, oh, I know this, and I've missed it, and I didn't realize that I missed it so much. Mm. So um, the history of it and the way that – just looking at the way that Mozart and Beethoven, who st roughly stayed in the same time period, had such vastly different approaches to it is a testament to the piano itself and how – much it could truly do. I'm not going to really look at the piano the same again. Whoa. Uh, as far as my favorite song, I'm torn between two. The concerto for two pianos is just, it's pure musical bliss. Mm -hmm. But also, the concerto number four, movement one, is such a a um cerebral masterpiece yeah and the fact that it's so challenging and so rewarding it's like i have to choose between what is more intellectually stimulating for me and what's more emotional stimulating and i think i'm gonna have to go with the concerto for two pianos i've got a bit more of a i've got a bit more of a personal attachment to it and it's just something I could literally put on at any point and just like have my mood lifted. But Beethoven's was was very close behind. Wow. 
And that's our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you have not already, please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening. We have new episodes every Monday at midnight. Next week, we are going to uh, be doing our very first Volume 3. Ooh. I remember when Volume 2 seemed like a quaint idea, and now we're getting into Volume 3. Yeah, this one's going to be pretty good. There's some pretty good music here. So you finally gotten a chance to listen to it? I Yes, yes. I am going to have fun in the uh, next few days picking apart these songs so when we uh, when we get to talk about it we'll certainly have some interesting history tidbits as well i'm sure yes i'm i feel like i'm finally gonna win you over for sure to this band this time so um make sure that y'all tune in next week for that one and uh there's two links in the episode description one takes you to that spotify playlist I won't go through that whole spiel again because we said it twice already. But you should check them out. And the other one goes to our Patreon page where you can get access to episodes early, the Friday before, as well as to our bad music segment. And we are coming up pretty soon on that end of year bracket. So you definitely aren't going to want to miss that. That's going to be a patron exclusive. So. Um, if you want to get access to that, go check out our page. Also, on Instagram and Facebook, that is where you uh, can get in on the conversation. You can message us and let us know what artists you want us to do episodes on in the future. We also like to um, do little games with you guys, put out hints of what the next episode is going to be. And that's where you can also find out, hey, who are we going to be talking about next week? And um, that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.